Thank you, Jonathan. That was awesome. That'll get you in the spirit. Let's all stand as we open the service tonight. We are excited to have Pastor Ed bringing the word. We got Matthew Ward with us tonight, and we're going to start by reading Psalm 86. Bow down your ear, O Lord, hear me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am holy, you are my God. Save your servant who trusts in you. Be merciful to me, O Lord, for I cried to you all day long. Rejoice the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, I lift my soul. Let's stop there and pray. Father, we want to come into this place tonight, Lord, humbled by the presence of your spirit, Lord. We know that you have a plan for this evening. God, I pray that your will would be accomplished with each of our hearts, Lord. Receive our praise. Be with the message, Lord. Be with the guest artist that shares the melodies and lyrics that you've blessed them with, Lord. I pray that we'd all be drawn into your presence. And all of us are agreed by saying tonight, amen. Amen. Why don't you guys turn around and say hello, and then we will worship. Lord, my soul, magnifies 
Good to be here. I get to sing with my friend John Andrew Schreiner, and uh, we don't get to work together very much. It's usually here doing this, but uh, I've known John for 30, I don't know, 100 years, just this side of, done a lot of stuff together. Uh, he worked on, I don't know if you guys, anybody out there remembers a group called the Second Chapter of Acts, but it was me and my two sisters, and John actually did some arrangements for us on two of our hymns, hymns albums. And he also produced one of my solo albums. It was called Fade to White. Yeah. Cool. Anyway, I want to sing some Christmas songs for you, just a few. And uh, it's good to see you guys. What child is this who lay to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? Who angels greet with anthems sweet while shepherds watch a keeping? This, this is Christ the King Whom shepherds guard And angels sing Haste, haste to bring him, Lord The babe, the son of Mary Why lies he in such mean a state Where ox and ass are feeding Good Christians fear for sinners hear The silent word is pleading Oh, 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 
whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Haste, haste to bring him, Lord, the babe, the son of Mary. So bring him incense, gold and myrrh, come peasant king to own him. The king of kings salvation brings, let loving hearts enthrone.
radiant beams from thy holy face with the dawn of redeeming grace Jesus Lord at thy birth Jesus Lord at thy Shut 
shall cease. Sweet hymns of joy in grateful chorus raise we let all within us praise his holy name. Christ is the Lord. Christmas, everyone. Hey, guys! Our next kids' Christmas rehearsal is December 17th at 1 p.m. In the church bulletin, there are tons of ministries. Men's ministry. Women's ministry. Children's ministry. Youth ministry. Also young adults. Monday nights with Bob. Creative hands, new wine and couples ministry. Prayer meeting and a restaurant ministry. Oh wait, and we forgot. A hot rod Bible study. All the ministries are free. Feel free to come. Invite a friend or possibly three. What's up, everybody? This is Pastor Greg. And I'm Rick. Hey, what's up, Miho? Just want to let you guys know that we're having our big Christmas Eve service, guys. It's going to be awesome on December. Robert, what are you doing? You could just tell them we're having a Christmas Eve service. Like, what is, what is all this theatrics? You're right. Just do it like this, bro. Come on out, December 24th, 6.30 in the main sanctuary. Pastor Ed, we're having a Christmas Eve service. All family, we're going to celebrate the Lord's birth together. Good evening. We're so glad that you're here tonight. If you're a believer and would like to participate in communion, it's available to you around the sanctuary. Also, if you'd like to support the ministry, we do have agape boxes in the back of the sanctuary and in the foyer. Let's take a moment to quiet our hearts before the Lord. 
Lord, we do look to you now. We thank you for your joy. We thank you for your presence here. We thank you that you are moving in our midst now. We thank you that you're available. All we need to do is call on your name. The name of Jesus always brings help. So we lay before you, Lord, the things that are going on in each one of our lives, those who are sick amongst us, those who are struggling with employment, those who need a new place to live, car problems, on and on, the struggles of this world, Lord. We know them, but we know that you can even help us, and you care about those things. So we bring those to you at the foot of the cross and ask that you reach out, reach down, and touch our lives. So, Lord, we invite you to move in and have your way in each one of our lives. We ask, Lord, that now as we turn to your word, that you would speak to us, that you would send your Holy Spirit to be our teacher, that we might see you more clearly than we have before, that we might sense the presence of you here in this place. So come and speak to us now, we ask. We ask it in Jesus' name, and all of God's people agreed by saying, Amen. If you can stand with me, if you can, grab your Bibles. We're in Acts chapter 9, verse 23. So Saul has been uh, working his way through the time in Damascus. Now, after many days passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. And he did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, and that he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly in Damascus, in the name of Jesus. So he was with them in Jerusalem, coming in and going out. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. And then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord, in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Now it came to pass, as Peter went through all the parts of the country, that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydia. And there he found a certain man, a man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden for eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus is the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. And he arose immediately. So all that dwelt in Lydia and Sharon or Sharon called him and turned to the Lord. At Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. 
this woman was full of good works and charitable deeds that she did, but it happened in those days that she became sick and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydia was near Joppa and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. Then Peter arose and went to them, and when he had come, brought him down, brought him, excuse me, into the upper room, and as the widows stood by him weeping, showing their tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with him. But Peter put them all out, knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. And so it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon, a tanner. Let's stop there and pray. Lord, again, we ask that you would speak to us now, that you would teach us, that you open our eyes to see what you're doing here in the early church and how you want to continue to do it even now. So speak to us now, we ask in Jesus' name, and all of God's people agreed by saying, Amen. You may be seated, please. Well, we uh, just read of a dead woman who came back to life. As you probably already know, uh, doctors and lawyers don't get along very well with each other. I was reading this article about an older pathologist who was being sued in a malpractice suit where a man died, and a, a new young lawyer was questioning him in the trial, and uh, he was a little bit too anxious to win his first big case. So here's the transcript of what the questions were to the doctor on the stand. Question, doctor, before you performed the autopsy, did you check for a pulse? Answer, no. Question, did you check for blood pressure? Answer, no. Question, did you check for breathing? Answer, no. Question, then it is possible that the patient was alive when you began the autopsy? Answer, no. Question, doctor, how can you possibly be so sure? Answer, because his brain was sitting on my desk in a jar. Question, but couldn't the patient still have been alive nevertheless? Answer, it's possible the patient could still have been alive and practicing law somewhere. <laughs> Much laughter in the courtroom. Obviously, the lawyer had more faith than the doctor did. So we have been looking at the conversion, the, the life of Saul of Tarsus, as we're working our way through this uh, wonderful book of Acts written by Dr. Luke, which really has recorded the, the first Christian church in the world, starting there, of course, in Jerusalem. And then as we watched, it's, it's growing out from there. Now, as we look at this little section of the book of Acts, we'll see three different characters, three different people were introduced to or they were introduced to us. And they're each going through defining moments in their life, those crossroads, those important times 
that happen in all of our lives. These moments are going to leave them changed, and, and many of us have experienced those kind of defining moments that leave us changed and help us define who we really are. Crossroads in life. There's an old ancient Russian story uh, about a, a Russian Orthodox priest who would walk every day in Moscow uh, past the Kremlin on his way to his own church. And uh, minding his own business, but a new guard in front of the Kremlin stopped him at gunpoint. And the guard demanded, what was your name? Why are you here? And where are you going? The pastor looked at the guard a moment and smiled. And he said, those are really good questions. Tell me, young man, how much do they pay you? And uh, he said, uh, the soldier said, why, why three kopecks a month, sir? And the priest said, I'll pay you three more kopecks a month if you agree to stop me every week and ask me those same three questions. They're so important. We should be asking ourselves those questions often. Our name we usually figure out pretty quick. <laughs> what is your name? But then, why are you here? And where are you going? Saul of Tarsus knew the correct answers to those questions. He'd been touched by God. And he had a complete change of direction in his life because of that. He would, of course, later become known as Paul the Apostle. And uh, we will follow him as he left on a trip from Jer Jerusalem up to Damascus. And now he's going to come back down again. He was going up there, you'll remember, to arrest believers and to bring them back to Jerusalem so that they might be found guilty of blasphemy so that they could be killed. But it was on the road to Damascus that he had an encounter with God. A bright light flashed from heaven, knocked him down to the ground. And Saul asked, Lord, who are you? And Jesus said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And it was Paul or Saul's introduction. I keep using those two words, Saul and Paul, because they're actually the same name. Uh, Saul is his Hebrew name, and Paul is his Greek pronunciation of his name. So he had this, he had a defining moment on this road to Damascus, and he would be forever changed. He's never the same. So there's three parts to this section. It's really about good works, and we'll talk a little bit about them as we move along. Uh, God gave a, a hand to Saul, one and two, and, and then a hand to Aeneas, three through seven, and then a hand to Tabitha, verse 36 through 43. It's 23 to 30. Um, there's a mistake on that. Sorry, guys. It's verse 23 to 30 for a hand to Saul, a hand to Aeneas, 31 to 35, and then a hand to Tabitha, 36 to 43. Could you change that, please? Okay, so let's jump in and start with verse 23. Now, after many days were passed, and we know from other places that many days was actually three years that Paul was there, he wrote about it to the Galatians, Galatians 1.16. He said, immediately 
I conferred not with flesh and blood, neither went I up to Jerusalem, for which the apostles before me were there. But I went to Arabia and returned again unto Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him 15 days. So he's given us this background here in Acts, but it's more detailed over in his letter to the Galatians. Three years he spent in Damascus. Um, But then the Jews who were in Damascus started to raise up against him, verse 24. And their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night. So they were wanting to kill him, it says. That's kind of ironic, since Saul had come there to kill Christians, and now the roles are reversed. Again, Paul later writes to the Corinthians that the Jews had been working with the governor to capture him. 2 Corinthians 11, 32 says, In Damascus, the governor under Aretas, the king, kept the city of Damascus with a garrison, desirous to apprehend me, and though, excuse me, and through a window in a basket, I was let down by the wall and escaped his hands. So he, Paul is going to write of these things that happened to him in the various New Testament letters that we have from him so we can go back and forth and get a little more information. Verse 25, And then the disciples, those who were living in Damascus, took him by night and let him down through the wall in a large basket. Now it sounds like it's just a hole in the wall, but I, I have a couple of pictures. This is an ancient uh, drawing from the 1800s Notice the houses are on top of the wall. They actually hang over the wall. And there's a a modern shot, the next shot. And and you can see, again, there's a house up on the top. And so it was probably that kind of a situation. They were watching, the guards were watching the gates. And so they just went to a house that was built up on the wall and then let him down uh, over the outside of the wall. So uh, this little illustration, follow me if you can, is uh, an example of justifying uh, the smuggling of people and printed material over the years in the church. Um, Some of you would know Brother Andrew. He actually has has spoken here a couple of times. He passed away uh, last September, but um, he was a, a Dutchman who began taking Bibles in the early 60s into Iron Curtain countries in Europe. And uh, he would put them in Volkswagen buses and build all kinds of compartments in them and take them into the believers in Russia because there were no Russian Bibles being printed uh, inside Russia. They were only being printed outside. And so uh, my wife and I, Raylan, and I worked with him for a while. And uh, he... Uh, had a lot to do later with taking Bibles into Vietnam and and then into China and um, and also into the Muslim countries of Saudi Arabia and uh, so his organization uh, Open Doors uh, had a lot to do with getting Scripture into people all over the world, and, and there's still an organization there in Tustin, California, 
there is an office in Tustin. So um, Saul had to get out of the city or be killed. And under the cover of darkness, his Christian friends let him out over the wall. The same believers that Saul was going to come to kill are now helping him. He was coming to arrest them and take them back to Jerusalem, you'll remember. But now they're the ones that are helping him. He would, of course, it was a good investment. He would become um, one of the writers of the New Testament, the largest part of the New Testament. About a third of it was written by Paul himself. Now, what if he hadn't been released? Or what if he hadn't gotten away? Could God have used somebody else? Yes, of course, God is God. He can use anybody he wants. But I'm trying to make the point, I want you to see that God wanted to use this man. I'm going to turn this up just a little bit, guys. Somebody win. They can't hear me. Thanks. Um, so um, God chose him, and he wanted this man to be responsible. And so we have, a, I guess, a mindset that says, well, if I'm not successful, God will just use somebody else. But that's not the way our God works. He actually has a plan for you, for your life. And he wants to use you to do it. And you may not even yet know what that is, but he's not going to just replace you with somebody else along the way. He wants to use you. He wants it to be part of your experience, your crossroads, your defining moments of your life. So you'll become everything he wants you to be before he takes you home. So, uh, God is in the process of turning this murderer, of which Saul was, uh, into the greatest missionary perhaps the world has ever known. Verse 26, and when Saul had come to Jerusalem, about 140 miles south of Damascus, long distance, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. Of course, the apostles hadn't read the book of Acts. They don't have it yet. We know, of course, who he was. They remember what had happened to Stephen three years earlier when Saul had voted to have Stephen stoned to death. And so they were afraid he was going to do the same thing, turn on them. Verse 27 now we're introduced to somebody that we saw earlier in chapter 4. His name is Barnabas. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. And he declared to them how he had been the Lord of the road, on the road. And that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly in Damascus in the name of Jesus. So Barnabas was a wealthy uh, Jew from the island of Cyprus. You can go back and read it. It's in Acts 4.36. But I'll just give you the quick version of it. And uh, he was a, a Levite from the tribe of Levi, unrelated to the Pants Company, and uh, a priestly family. He was a very generous man. He gave generously to the church. His name, Bar, means son, and uh, Nablus is of encouragement. So they called him the son of encouragement because he had that gift. And, and I would encourage you all to develop that gift. It's easy to find people 
to criticize. There's plenty of critics around. But what the world needs are more people who are encouragers. And that's who this man was. He encouraged the apostles to encourage Paul to become everything God wanted him to be. Um, will you let God make you useful? That's the question here. He wants to make you, he said in Romans chapter 9, that, that he makes cups for the master's hand. Individuals that he wants to fill with himself and be useful in his hand. Um, we are the clay, we're told, and he is the potter. Clay submits to the potter, Ezekiel says. So he is uh, looking to join with the apostles. Uh, he's with Peter, we, we learned from Galatians for 15 days, and then James, the brother of uh, Jesus. And um, he is uh, having a hard time fitting in. And I've noticed that in, the, in this church, not just this church, but as I speak in other churches, I see the same thing happening. Uh, a Barnabas is a person who sees someone who's new or acting like they don't fit in and will approach them and make them welcome. It's, uh, it can be done gently. It doesn't have to be with a lot of fanfare. But remember the first time that you came to church and uh, did, I hope you have a good story that somebody welcomed you or at least said hi to you and made you feel welcome there. And so all the more reason that later we should become that person to encourage others. I don't know how many new people there are here. We, we get a lot of new people and... Uh, and so there's, there's probably a good number of you here this evening that are just visiting for the first time. Well, the rest of us who are here regularly, we need to seek you out. And, uh, and, and I'll just say for myself, if you're visiting, please come forward at the end of the service. I'd love to talk with you. At least shake your hand and, and get your name right. So uh, this Barnabas, he's that kind of person. Uh, and he's willing to take a rough Saul, and help turn him into Paul, the apostle. Um, in Hebrews 10, 24, in the Living Bible, it says, think of ways to encourage one another to outbursts of love and good deeds. And let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage and warn each other, especially now that the day of his coming back again is drawing near. So, reach out, as the old telephone commercial said, reach out and touch somebody, right? Verse 28. So he was with them in Jerusalem. Paul was visiting in Jerusalem, coming in and going out. Uh, this is an interesting little verse to me. The idea is that he went everywhere with the disciples and they accepted him as one of them. Now, Imagine Saul being taken around the city by Peter and John and the others. How about taking Paul to his first visit to the Garden of Gethsemane? And I can just see Peter taking him. He said, yeah, this is where Jesus prayed. 
and this is where we were, and this is where I fell asleep, Peter would say. And, uh, and then we would uh, watch him be arrested here, and then we went, uh, come follow me, we'll go over to the high priest's patio, and, and he takes him over there. So Paul gets the tour um, from the apostles. And from there, probably took him to the city, and yeah, and this is where Simon the Cyrenian helped carry the cross, and we turned this corner, and look, there's Golgotha, and that's where Jesus was crucified. So Paul is getting a, a front row seat and they're going to watch him grow as he looks at all the various places. By the way, if you've never been to Israel, you need to go for, for this reason. It will increase your faith, but it will help put in your mind when you read the Gospels and the letters uh, of what it all looks like. And uh, probably not this week, but maybe uh, not too long. As you know, the news is not good right now. Go to Israel. And, uh, and see it. Verse 29. But he spoke Saul, but Saul spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, those who were Greek-speaking Jews, but they attempted to kill him. <laughs> uh, did you notice this same statement back in verse 23? Everybody wanted to kill Paul. What's the deal? That's what they were trying to do to him in uh, Damascus. For a short time, Paul was in Jerusalem, but once again, he takes up where you'll remember Stephen was speaking to the Hellenists at that synagogue, and that's where he was arrested, same place. So he's making people uncomfortable. Why? Why does Paul make people uncomfortable? Because he talks about God. And you can get away with talking about God most of the time with almost anyone. But he keeps using the name of Jesus. And that's where people start to react and they start to shut down. Um, I had a... Uh, well, um, they all tried to kill Paul. <laughs> and eventually the Romans would be successful. Verse 30. And when the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. Now, Caesarea is the main port that the Romans built in Israel. It's a beautiful spot. There's a long-distance shot of it. Uh, that whole uh, scalloped edge is uh, part of Caesarea Maritime. It's called Caesarea by the Sea. There's another Caesarea up in the north. Beautiful outdoor uh, theater, and uh, the ocean is just to the right from this photograph. This is the place where the pilot stone was found. If you look carefully, it's in Latin, but it says Pontius Pilate uh, was procreator. He was the governor there, and that stone was found in the mid-60s. Just something to encourage you that archaeology is continually finding things that confirm what the scripture says. Here's a shot of the, of the main um, harbor where the boats came in. The, the, uh, the tide is down, so it looks more rocky than it does when the tide is up. 
but basically the center, that pool, is the center of the harbor. And that's the place that Paul would leave from. He'd go up the coast um, of Tyre and Sinan, which Lebanon today, and then up into Turkey, because Tar Tarsus is about 500, almost 600, 576 miles north. So uh, that's the port of Caesarea, where Paul would be, and, uh, and he would leave from to go home. Why Tarsus? Why are they sending him back to Tarsus? Because that's his hometown. That's where he grew up. That's a principle in Scripture. When you come to the Lord, when I came to the Lord, God sent me back to my family to tell them what happened to me. Maybe you uh, haven't done that yet, but if you become a believer, uh, that's one of the things the Holy Spirit will have you do. And, uh, and again, uh, when, I went to, when I started going to my family, I would just talk about God, but then I began to realize that it was Jesus they needed to hear about to be saved. And uh, pretty soon my family, uh, I've I managed to make most of the people in my family, cousins, aunts and uncles, brothers and sisters, angry at me. Uh, it, it's uh, because I keep using the name Jesus. I won't let them talk about God as the great guy up in the sky. My sister likes to say that. She likes to say it just because it makes me upset. Um, I have two sisters. My oldest sister um, has a, uh, called me. Uh, this has been several years ago now. But um, she and her husband had been down here in Redlands and I took him to lunch one day and and her husband uh, had a sudden heart attack and he died. And she called me to tell me and then she said, uh, I called, I really called to thank you. And I said, thank me for what? I said, well, when we went to lunch, you pressed my husband, Howard, about Jesus. And, and so here's what happened, Howard, Oh, it was a big, tall guy. He was about six six, and he was an engineer for one of the, one of the, if not the largest engineering company in the world. They built freshwater plants everywhere, from Saudi Arabia and Africa. Really bright guy, but he intimidated me. He was so bright, just super smart. He could do square roots in his head. Now, all of us can do square roots if we have a calculator and we find out where the button is. You know? um, but he could do them uh, in a matter of seconds, no matter how big the number was. And uh, just nice guy, but just so bright, I was afraid to tell him about God. So God started speaking to me about speaking to the rest of my family. And so at lunch that day, we were uh, in a burger place. It was fast food. And, and, uh, and I, I said, I'm just going to have to tell him. I've got to ask him. I said, Howard, I know you go to church every Sunday. They're a very religious couple. I said, I know you go to church every Sunday, but have you ever asked Jesus into your heart? 
I don't want to make you angry. I don't want to cause a fight. I, I just need to know whether you've ever asked Jesus. And he looked at me, and his, his eyes started to tear up. He said, yeah, when I was 13 years old, I went to a summer camp, and they had an altar call, and then they had a baptism, and I received Jesus, and I was baptized. And my sister went, what? She'd never heard that story. They'd been married for like 30 years. And, he, and they would go to church every Sunday, the denominational church, but, but he just never said it. And so when he had a heart attack, I mean, he had a heart attack, he was gone, literally in a heartbeat. And my sister knew uh, CPR. She tried to give him CPR. She said the, the, uh, the EMTs were there within five minutes. They gave him CPR. He just, he was gone. Jesus said, no, you're going home. But she was calling to thank me that she didn't know that her husband had given his heart to the Lord. And now she had great comfort. And now she's become a much stronger believer because of that. And I feel like I'm supposed to tell somebody that story. I don't know who it is that's here that you need to just break and tell that person that you care about. Why, am I, why do I feel so strong about that? Ten years before that, my favorite uncle, great guy, pilot, had a Marlin boat, cool cars, wore a suit every day, but just a fun guy. I really thought he was the coolest guy. One day, I, I was with him for about a half an hour. He, he was in, in my truck, and I was just driving him somewhere, and we talked. And I felt the Lord say, talk to him about Jesus. And I didn't. I, I was too intimidated. A week later, he had a heart attack, and he died. And I was so upset at myself that I didn't take that opportunity that I, I told the Lord that I wouldn't miss an opportunity with a member of my family ever again. And that's why I, my brother-in-law, I, I just, I, I'm going in. I got to do it. But that's the fruit of it. I tell you that story just to encourage you to do the same thing. It, it doesn't, it's not rude to say, have you ever asked Jesus to take your life? It's that simple. And if they say no, you don't have to fix it all right there, but you've planted a seed by asking that question. Have you ever asked Jesus to take your life? So Saul gets, a, a, uh, gets to... Um, Tarsus back to his own home, and I'm sure he talked to his family about it. Interesting, later we'll see that uh, his sister and his nephew will save his life uh, when he gets arrested in, in the hands of the Romans. So we know his sister um, got the word. Uh, let's move along here. We're almost through. 31. Then the churches throughout all Judea Galilee and Samaria had peace and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit and they were multiplied. So uh, these are actually characteristics of a good, healthy church. It said they had peace uh, and they were 
with God and of God. They had the peace of God and peace with God. Number two, they were edified. They were being built up all the time because they were studying God's word. Number three, they were walking in reverence with the Lord. They were serious about their relationship with God. And the Holy Spirit was a comfort. The word literally means the help to them. They had the help, the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And then fifthly, they were numerical growth. The church is multiplying. So now Luke returns back to Peter's ministry like he did in the beginning. It was Peter who preached on the Temple Mount in chapter 2 and then preached at Passover. Verse 32. And it came to pass as Peter went through all parts of the country that he also came down to the states who dwell at Lydia. Now this is the first time the word saints appears in the Bible. And uh, it doesn't mean someone who's perfect. It, it means that it's someone who uh, has committed their life to the Lord. You are saints. <laughs> somebody just nudged somebody else and said, see, see, I told, I've been trying to tell you that for a long time. <laughs> you are saints. If you've surrendered your heart to the Lord, you don't, that doesn't mean you have a picture in stained glass somewhere with a little halo around your head or anything like that. Uh, in reality, that's why he says, the saints who dwelled at Lydia, those are all the believers that dwelt in the city of Lydia. Now, Lydia is the modern city of Lod, L-O-D in Hebrew. And it's actually the city you fly into when you go to Israel. Um, and it is... Uh, filled with believers even to this day. Verse 33. And he found a certain man named Aeneas uh, who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. So Peter goes to the believers there and he finds this bedridden man. Um, eight years of atrophy. <laughs> eight days without moving is really hard on your, your muscles and nerves, but this guy's been in bed for eight years paralyzed. This word is only used nine times in the Bible. It's paralumina, and it usually is translated paralyzed, meaning loss of control of the leg nerves. He's got weakness. He has palsy. It's another word, old word that's used for that. 34, Peter says to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, heals you Arise and make your bed. Now, teenagers, notice this is scriptural, to make your bed. Mom, you may want to take this verse and use it on your kids. Um, and Jesus Christ heals you. Now, Peter's making it very clear that it wasn't him. It's not that he had any gift of healing. It plainly is Jesus who's doing the healing, and Peter's just the instrument. God wants to do good works through you, too, like this. Um, Matthew 5, 14, Jesus said, you are the light of the world. <laughs> a city that's set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor 
do they light a lamp and put it under a bush, a basket, but a lampstand, and then the light is clear to all who are in the house. Let your light, your light, so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So, good works are what you and I were created for. That God wants to let your light, his light shine through you as you do things that other people see are acts of kindness, acts of humility, acts of grace. So, he says in John 5, 8, Jesus said almost the same thing, take up your bed and walk. And uh, the whole idea is you're going to not need this bed. Here he says, arise and make your bed because you spent your life in the bed all day long. You're not going to need it anymore. You sleep there tonight, but you need it all the time. So um, these people are impressed, verse 35. All who dwelt at Lydia and Sharon or Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. So a, a great response to the people. Now, Lydia has this old building. That is something that's called the Caravanzera. And I take a minute to show it to you because that's the name that was used of the place, the, the barn where Jesus was born. He was born in a manger in a caravanzera. The name, you can hear the word caravan in it. It was a caravan um, on a caravan route. Camels can only go about 25 miles a day. And so they would go from these inns. Well, go back to that place. They'd go from these inns, one to the north. The camels would go in the bottom. And the top floor was where the people that were in the caravan would spend the night. And so there's one of these still in the city of Lydia. When we go to Israel, we see it. And uh, Camel Respot. Those who dwelt in Sharon turned to the Lord. So there's a, a revival that breaks out in this city. Um, and it's not very far away that there's another person that's sick. Uh, verse 36. At Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha. A woman, which is translated Dorcas. Now, I would never translate my name <laughs> if it was Dork. Uh, I, I just, I, I'd stick with the Tabitha. But this woman was full of good works. She had a lot of kindness in her charitable deeds, which she did. So she's in this ancient seaport of Java. That's a whale because it's from this port that uh, uh, Jonah went to go to Nineveh, only he was going in a different direction. But that whale uh, is on display there. I guess the people are proud that this is where Jonah got swallowed. I don't know, but it's there in the city. And uh, there's a picture here of... Uh, of a house, and uh, th there's a connection here. Let, let me uh, 
Peter is about ready to go to the Gentile world. And he goes to the same harbor, Joppa, where Jonah was supposed to go to a Gentile city. The city of Nineveh was a Gentile city in Assyria. And so there's the connection here. But at this place, there was a woman named Tabitha who was very popular because she was uh, giving away the things she made. She wasn't a gifted writer. She didn't write books. She wasn't a gifted speaker. She didn't give Bible studies or, or anything like that. What she did was knit cardigan sweaters, okay? That's what she's famous for. Good works and charitable deeds because she was showing kindness to other people. But it happened in those days that she became sick, verse 37, and died. And when they had washed her and laid her in an upper room, so she, they're going to do a traditional Jewish burial. A, a Jew is always buried the same day before sundown that they die. And they always go through this process of washing the whole body because it comes from this idea of you were born in amniotic fluid, which washed you, and you should be washed properly when you're going back. So, um, to God. And... Um, she has been washed, and then they put a shroud over them called the Takamina, and it's probably the same thing that Jesus had put on him. And, uh, and so she's there under the shroud, 38. Since Lydia was near Joppa, Lydia's where Peter was, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. It's only about 10 miles further along the same road, um, and uh, they seem to be expecting God to use Peter to raise Tabitha from the dead. They had great faith, verse 39. And then Peter rose and went with them, and when he had come, they brought him to the upper room where she had been laid, and all the widows stood with him weeping, showing the tunics and the garments, the sweaters, um, which Dorcas had made while she was with them. These are some of the people that this lady had showed kindness to by knitting these various garments that they needed. So good needs, and she had good deeds, excuse me, and she used a knitting needle, I guess you could say. Uh, she was great at it. She did what she could do. But Peter put them all out moved all these widows out of the room uh, and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise, or Tabitha kume, which should sound familiar to you because that's the same words, one letter different. There was a little girl named Talitha, T-A-L-I-T-H-A, a uh, little lamb, uh, only in this case, uh, that was the daughter of the ruler of the synagogue in Mark 5.38. Peter says, Tabitha, kume, which is gazelle, arise, and Talitha, kume, is lamb, arise, the little girl. They called her lamb. She opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. Um, 
I, I wonder about Peter's prayer. I'm sorry, I just think of things like this. So Peter knelt down and started praying. And I think his prayer was pretty plain. I think he went, Jesus, you know I was just a fisherman. I was repairing nets when you came. And you said, come follow me. So I started following you. And, and you know I don't know anything. All the mistakes I made that night you were crucified. And now all of a sudden I'm, I'm, I'm with this dead lady. And they expect me to pray for her. I think that's a great way to pray. I think you and I ought to be doing the same thing. Lord, you know me. I, I was just an idiot. And you said, come and follow me. And, and I'm trying to follow you. And, and now these people want to come to church and, and read the Bible. And want me to say something clever. <laughs> I got nothing, Lord. Unless you do something, I got nothing. I think that's exactly what Peter said. Unless you do something for this lady, I've got nothing. But God wanted to use him. And so he did. So, when she saw Peter open her eyes, now she was dead. It was very clear. And she was going to be buried that afternoon. And suddenly she stands up. No CPR. Verse 41. And then he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and the widows... He presented her alive. I don't know. Ta-da. <laughs> How do you do that? So God raised Dorcas, yet James and Stephen remained dead. Not everyone are, uh, are healed. Why this woman? Why not Stephen who was preaching to all these people and they were getting saved? So could it be that God holds service to the saints in practical ways more important than we do? Maybe we don't see what a great thing that it is that she was doing. Just helping poor people, making sure they had clothing. Verse 42, and it became known throughout all of Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. So there's part of the reason God uses this miracle of bringing her back to life to lead many people to faith. God would raise them from the dead too. And so it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon a tanner. Now, this door is, that's the traditional site of where Peter stayed in Joppa. That's, you can't read it from there, but it says the tanner's house. Now, that's significant for a couple of reasons, but tanners were unclean according to the Jewish law because they were dealing with skins and having to touch dead animals, which was against kosher. But God is going to use this to begin to break down that mindset that Peter came with. And he's going to begin to see that it is not by works of righteousness that we have done, 
but according to his mercy, he saves us. That it's not by keeping the rules and regulations of the law. It's by hanging on to his grace, by letting God do that in our lives. So Ephesians 2, 9 says, By grace you have been saved through faith. That not of yourselves. You don't earn it. I don't earn it. It's a gift of God. Not of works. At least anyone should boast. Not because we do good things. For we are his workmanship. God's created us in Christ Jesus to do good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We don't do good works to get saved. We do good works because we are saved and we're so appreciative of what God has done. When it says we are his workmanship, the word is poema, which is the word for poem in the Greek language. You are a poetry in motion, God says, now that you are saved. You are creating a masterpiece. Your life is like a poem. That's what he's saying. You are becoming God's masterpiece. So I was reading something about good works in, in Max Lucado. I like the writer. He's a great guy. He's a pastor in San Antonio, Texas. And he was, the, the book's name is You Were Made for This Moment. I like that. You were made for this moment right now. So he tells a story about a time when he won a trophy. He's a golfer in the golfing. Um, he won a trophy for playing golf in a pro-am. Now, I'm not a golfer, but I did caddy when I was in junior high, so I understand the game. So he was part of a, a group of four guys who were chosen out of the crowd. He, who was just a writer, and then two guys that were also pastors. And then the fourth guy was one of the greatest golfers in America. Okay, on the same team, and they're in a foursome. And the way it works in golf is everybody hits the ball. The one that's the best lie, the one that's closest to the pin, getting into the hole, is one the other guys, other three guys on the team, let the pro go. And every time, the pro was the one that they counted how many shots. And, and then there's all these foursomes, a couple of hundred of them playing. Well, he said, they always used this guy's ball. It always went the furthest and the closest to the pin. He said, finally, on the last hole, he, Max Lucado, he said, I just, I said, why not? He said, I'm not going to use it anyway. Let me just hit this thing as hard as I can. I don't know where it's going to go. And he did. He, he laid it out, and, and wouldn't you know it, the ball goes absolutely perfectly straight and hits on the green, and goes in the cup. He gets a hole in one. And he gets his, in the paper. He's the only one that got a hole in one. The other guy's getting birdies and great shots. But located. And he says, that's the way life is for all of us. He gets the credit when Jesus does all the hard work. The 17 holes that Jesus does. You and I are the same way. We're all in a foursome, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then us, right? And God is getting all in one every time. You get the score. 
because Jesus died for you. You have that opportunity to spend eternity with God. But up until that time, you have an opportunity to be his servant that other people will watch and see. Would you stand, please? And we'll pray together. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you are uh, using these men in the first century to go into all the world and to share your love with others. Thank you that you want us to do the same. And most of us in this room have experienced that, that we just see your hand in our lives and those defining moments and those crossroads that you brought us this far. Thank you, Lord, that you're planning on taking us all the way home to heaven. But, but Lord, we pray for anyone in this room that may not be walking with you, that, that maybe um, they know that they're a sinner. Nobody has to tell you when you're a sinner. You know it. But Lord, we pray that you would give grace for anyone that's here this evening that needs to surrender to you and let you be Lord of their lives. Christians, please pray. So, small crowd tonight, but I wonder if there's somebody here who's visiting for the first time, or maybe you've been here before. But through this service, you know you need to let God have control of your life. You need to ask him to forgive your sins and take your life. I wouldn't do anything to embarrass you, but if you'd like to know that your sins are forgiven, if you're ready to surrender to God, would you let me know you're ready by looking up at me and raising your hand? And by that, I'll take that to mean you need to ask God to forgive your life. Anyone here this evening that's like that? You need to have his forgiveness. I don't see any hands. All right. So let me just pronounce the blessing on you that Moses was ordered to do every time believers came together. So it goes like this. Now may the Lord bless you, and may he keep you. And may he make his face to shine upon you. And may he lift his countenance upon you. And may he fill you with every good gift. Be gracious unto you. And may others see in your eye the result of his presence and ask you, what is it that you have? God bless you. You have a wonderful evening. Good night. Give somebody a hug before you go home. <laughs>